0: Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 26 on August 11th, 2017, coming to you of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we got out of the studio and headed over to talk to Matt at Brick Cidery. We also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. In and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts. This week, we headed out 40 minutes west of Madison to visit one of the folks behind Brick Cider, a new craft cider outfit. So let's get right into that interview. Can you uh, introduce yourself and Brick Cidery?
1: So I'm Matt Raboyne, and my wife and I, my wife Marie and I started Brick Cider in the fall of 2016. Uh, we produced our first couple of commercial batches in 2016 and into 2017. And we are, for now, just in a handful of accounts around the Madison area, but this fall we're hoping to move into a new production facility and really expand and get into a lot more accounts.
0: If you've ever been, if you've been to a grocery store or liquor store recently, you've noticed that cider seems to be <laughs> proliferating. I remember when I first started drinking cider years ago, there was you know like a Angry Orchard or nothing. That was about the only one you could find reliably anywhere. Um, and now there's at least in the Madison area, I've noticed like dozens and dozens of types of cider that are available at the grocery store. Do you have any insight into why that's happening and what got you interested in cider?
1: The cider industry really started to take off around. 2011 and really skyrocketed 2011 to like 2015 mm-hmm. and some of those early entrants were just kind of bigger companies that saw a market opportunity and mm-hmm. bought apple juice concentrate from wherever they could get it cheapest mm-hmm. and and cranked out a product and marketed it. But then at the same time, there've been a lot of smaller companies just popping up little craft cideries or orchards that expanded into making cider mm-hmm. as well. So the craft cider movement's been a little slower, but it's been a steadier growth and it's continued into into recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyhow, yes, how we got interested in cider. We've been we've been making cider since before it was cool. We were <laughs> 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 I think uh, I made my first I started fermenting stuff about 10 years ago and I uh, and met Marie about eight years ago and we made some cider just on a on a whim one fall we bought some juice from an orchard and fermented it out and thought wow this is way better than the stuff you get at the grocery store mm-hmm. like what it wasn't that hard so then you know each year since we did more and more batches of cider we got our own Press. We started experimenting with different varieties and different blends, and eventually we thought, let's let's make a business out of this. And we had our day jobs, and we kind of had to like plug away for a while as we planned things out. And then, uh, yeah, last fall we decided to jump in and give it a shot. We still have our day jobs for now, but that's at least for me likely ending this fall. Oh, wow. where we're going going all in.
0: Was there a point at which you said, hey, this is beyond just making cider in my kitchen? We should really do this. As a job.
1: I think it was gradual. I was working a nine-to-five that was really more like a eight-to-seven, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it was a drag, and I'd just be so excited to come home and make something, and I've always just had a creative energy that needs an outlet, and I feel like making cider can be that outlet, and both Marie and I, we, we met in graduate school. We both studied agroecology for our master's degrees, and so we both always kind of had the dream of, of having a farm and in this case an orchard um, and just that. we saw cider as as a way to sort of meld multiple hobbies and interests into something and and build a dream out of it and go for it.
0: And and so your cider is called Bricks Cider, B-R-I-X. What does Bricks actually mean?
1: We liked it because it's a simple, easy to remember name, four letters. Bricks means, it, it's the first thing I look at when I look at an apple to decide if this is an apple I want to try fermenting, as I look at the bricks. And bricks is a measurement of basically just the sugar content in the Thanks. juice. You hear of winemakers testing bricks, and bricks is a very common term in wine, and, and winemakers will go out and test the bricks of their grapes to decide if it's time to harvest mm-hmm. or not, they'll Look at the forecast and say, oh, is it going to rain? Is that going to dilute these grapes and lower the bricks? Or is it going to be dry and this will go up? And they want to get that nice high bricks uh, to make a a real robust, full-flavored wine. And so we're looking for the same thing in apples. And, And we see ourselves... In some ways, like winemakers, in that we're, we're looking for special apples and apples that were grown and harvested in the right way.
0: Do you know much about the history of apples? I've seen a documentary that said that before Prohibition, there were cider apples and eating apples, or they said eaten apples.
1: It's, I mean, it's a complex history, and not everybody knows all of it, or we don't know all of it. But you go back to, gosh, early 1800s or so, and in the Americas, there were something like 14,000 named apple varieties. And, and, and a lot of those have been lost to time. There's a friend of ours, Dan Bussey, who works at Seed Savers Exchange in Iowa. He's an apple historian. He can, he has written a book where he's compiled uh, over 15,000 varieties and, and the stories of them and a little bit of history of them. So it's really a diverse history And as far as what are cider apples versus what are eating apples. The biggest difference, I'd say, for a cider apple is... Um, is the presence of tannins, which are tannic acids. They provide a whole range of different possible flavors, but most common are are bitterness and astringency, which you typically don't want when you bite into an apple. You don't want it to be bitter. You don't want it to really dry your mouth out. But some of that in a cider can really make a cider interesting. If you think of like a dry red wine, there's a fair amount of astringency there. Mm -hmm. Or if you think of a hoppy beer, there might be quite a bit of bitterness there. So you can get a a cider apple that has some of that just right there in the apple compared to just making an a, a cider with I don't know a golden delicious or something golden delicious has some decent sugar content makes an okay cider but it's a little bit blah uh, where you can get a, a cider apple that has that high bricks has a nice balance of acidity and has some tannins to really fill it out.
0: So you, you've planted an orchard here but it hasn't borne fruit yet because it's pretty new is that right? We have
1: some apples on trees right now We've We got a few apples last year, very few apples last year. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a young orchard, and we are experimenting with about 80 varieties planted out there, about a 1,000 trees total. Yeah, we're trying to see which ones we like, which ones are healthy and productive and produce an apple that we like. We're planning to use these apples for specialty batches, but we're still going to be doing a lot of cider, the larger volume of cider we're still going to be buying apples or or harvesting them ourselves. You could make a cidery with just a thousand trees. You'd have to really get nice margins on each bottle to make it a viable business because it's it's actually still pretty small and and our trees are dwarf trees for the most part so they're, they're smaller. And the advantage of dwarf trees there's a few advantages to the dwarf trees at least in if you're trying any kind of commercial production or even in a backyard, there's some advantages. What's nice is you don't need to be going up and down a ladder to pick stuff. You can just ride through with the wagon, with bins on the back, and just pick it by hand. The other advantage is they bear fruit sooner, so you oh, can sure. plant them and have fruit after after three years. Mm-hmm. And acre per acre, you can get more yield. They're able to utilize sunlight, really, mm-hmm. um, versus a big tree, which is like a giant mushroom shape, and, and, and you're not getting any fruit in the inside of that mushroom where the light isn't penetrating. I think if you're planting a typical orchard, you're looking for maybe a bushel per tree. In our case, since a lot of these are kind of oddball varieties that aren't well-researched or typically promoted in a high production system, they're just older heirlooms. And so we're not expecting a full bushel per tree. We'll probably get, you know, we'll have some trees that do that. Some trees will be half that. Some trees will be just terrible. But yeah, if you plant, say, a Macintosh... Or Cortland or something that's Mm -hmm. pretty well known. You can expect maybe a bushel.
0: Okay. And a bushel will press into how much?
1: As a rule of thumb, maybe three gallons a bushel.
0: Right now you're making uh cider out of what you call wild apples, or can you talk a little bit about what is a wild apple? So I'll
1: crack open a bottle of of wild apple cider while we while I explain what wild apples are. So wild apples Or another word, what could be seedling apples, uh, are apples that are grown from seed as opposed to every apple you've ever got from a grocery store came from a grafted tree. So like every Granny Smith apple came from the same Granny Smith tree once upon a time in Australia. I think uh, every named variety, that's what it is. They're all genetically identical because it's really from the same original tree, taking cuttings and grafting it to some roots and growing out that that tree you get then the granny smith apple technically the true true wild apples are all in kazakhstan where there are forests of wild apples you know that's the origin of apples but here in the states what i would refer to as a wild apple is anything that came from seed because those are going to be each one genetically unique each one unique as you or i and and you know how wild apple trees get planted they can you know sometimes people plant them on purpose but Most of the time, it's just from seeds, some getting somewhere, traveling and getting in the ground and growing. And sometimes, what I've seen a lot of is old abandoned orchards that maybe were cut down, but then new apples sprouted. You know, we are really amazed by how many we see when we drive around the countryside. The best time to look is in the springtime when the apples are in bloom. You see these white flowers scattered all over. And so we see a lot on forest edges that's sort of the natural habitat of the apple species and you'll see forest edge dotted with all these pinkish white flowers and so we'll kind of note down where the good spots are and then try to meet the farmer the landowner and see if they'll let us pick there people we've approached so far just happy to have a use for them because they have all these apples and, and don't know what to do with them. But anyhow, back in the old days, uh, when cider was the drink of choice in, in America, that's what most ciders were, is wild apples, because people weren't grafting back then. It was folks mm-hmm. like Johnny Appleseed going out and planting true seedlings. And so you'd have these big, extensive orchards with great big trees. And, mm-hmm. and each one's a little different, and they just blend it all together into a, into mm-hmm. a cider. And so with our wild apple cider that you're drinking now, that's kind of what we were hoping to recreate, was that you know, old-time kind of homesteaders mm-hmm. type of cider, the, the flavors that may mm-hmm. have existed once upon a time.
0: My impression is that it's like a semi-dry wine.
1: Yeah, I think that would be accurate. A lot of the ciders, the real sweet ciders you get in the store, they'll back-sweeten it with, you know, the nicer ones will just back-sweeten with juice, but a lot of them will back-sweeten with who knows what and add some flavorings and...
0: So back sweetening is basically adding sugar after the fermentation. is done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm not a fan of the soda like ciders out on the market today. I think there's people who like that and that's you know that's fine but it's not it's not my thing. I like a little drier. Yeah, this one's kind of a semi-dry. Most of ours are very dry. And yeah, I think in the again in the in the old days like this one like we said, we're trying to recreate an old-time cider. And they wouldn't have been back-sweetening in those days. And they were just probably using spontaneous or just wild fermentations. If you just let a juice go on its own, the wild yeasts in the air or on your pressing equipment or in your, your mm. fermenters will, uh, or in barrels, they used barrels mostly back then, um, mm-hmm. those wild yeasts will ferment it. Uh, we did actually on the side produce one where we did it totally as a wild fermentation just mm. for... Our own consumption and it was really good, but I think it might have been challenging for some customers. I've so we, there's still pretty strong cider traditions in parts of England and France and Spain in particular, that, uh, where they make some really interesting stuff, very distinct. Um, I think the American market's just starting to notice that there's possible diversity to cider. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be this apple soda drink that <laughs> mm-hmm. that. That'll, some companies are pushing out and i think consumers are catching on and
0: is there a national organization where people are interested in looking
1: as far as like a source of where cideries are there's uh, cidermarket.com and they actually spell cider with a y um so cidermarket.com has a great map and state by state they list all the cideries And then you asked about an organization. There's the United States Association of Cider Makers. And each year they do a conference, like a national conference.
0: How is Wisconsin for growing apples? And have you seen much change in the climate here? since you've been paying
1: attention to this. Yeah, Wisconsin's a pretty good spot for growing apples on the whole. You know, we're a little bit humid in the summer and a little wet, which can be less inviting than somewhere a little drier where you can irrigate just because we get a, mo- a little more disease pressure, especially apple scab. But on the whole, apples need a chilling period in the winter. We certainly have that. We get plenty of warm weather in the summer, a long enough growing season for most apples. Um, but like i said there's such a diversity of apple varieties mm-hmm. you know what you can grow here is different than what you can grow you know all around the country as far as climate change goes yes about that and that is uh, kind of a scary one for us so in wisconsin they've been watching bloom time over like the last hundred plus mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. And, And they've seen it moving earlier and earlier. And that's fine. It's like, oh, it's great, longer growing season. But combined with that, we're getting greater climate variability. You'll get that early bloom, but you might also get a late frost. And that's what can be detrimental.
0: Apples use bees as pollinators. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship?
1: Um, We're lucky in that our neighbor actually has quite a few beehives on his property. They're maybe a quarter mile away as the as the bee flies. And then in addition to that, we are trying to create some habitat for native pollinators. I've read that there are native pollinators who are actually much more efficient than honeybees at pollinating apple blossoms. Per bee, they'll hit a bunch more. And so things you can do to just have native pollinators around is have a lot of flowering plants. That Something that flowers in the spring, something that flowers early summer. Then pollinators have a year-round food source. There's different ways you can set up little houses for different kinds of bees. We have planted some pollinator habitat and and we're hoping to expand that in future years and then yeah create some do some little nest boxes and things like that
0: what, what struck me about when i looked at, at your website uh, which is rickcider.com you have a really ambitious cider testing program i love that type of experimentation that's what we're kind of all about at the Low tech institute is. so can you describe this single variety experimentation testing program you have going on
1: you know, over a few years, we've been just testing varieties. We'll press one variety at a time and, and test the bricks and test the acidity. And recently, we've been starting to test tannins as well. We had been doing it sort of informally for a few years. This past year, uh, we thought, oh, let's try and do this formally. And, and we applied for a SARE, Farmer Rancher Grant. SARE stands for Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. And those are great little, they're little grants that it allows you to do sort of fun research like what we're doing. You know, in the past we were traveling all over buying weird apple varieties from wherever we could find them to do these experiments. And this time we had some grant funding to help pay for that. What we did this year is we tested 40 different varieties. So each one was one gallon. We did a full fermentation of all of them. We can, tried to control everything. So it's same yeast, same temperature, same processes, everything uh, the same. So hopefully any differences we saw would just be the difference in the apple and then we did tastings and we actually brought them to that cider conference and i did a presentation and people got to taste all 40 varieties i'm
0: sure plenty of people volunteered for that part yeah it was a popular (laughs) it was a
1: popular session (laughs) and we did it we got a little tasting panel here so we got other people's take on it on all the different ones because i you know i have a palate my wife has a palate we we have our preferences but it's great to see what other people think too and then we posted it all on brickcider.com so the rest of the world can see it yeah we don't see it as a trade secret only for us we want to see the craft cider industry grow and beyond just our little business we want other little businesses to do well also and the more information we can all share the better we're all going to do
0: I'm kind of surprised that um, home brewing has taken off I'm surprised that uh, making cider at home hasn't taken off more because I understand the beer making process and I've made a lot of cider, and cider is way easier.
1: (laughs) It is easier.
0: Beer is a really complex process and people are making that at home, Uh, but apples, like, you can literally drive up to an apple tree, pick bushels of apples, take it home, press it. Can you describe real basically the process, like, if someone wanted to try it, what would be a real basic sort of process that they would follow?
1: So if you want to do the easiest cider in the whole world, Mm -hmm. go to an orchard, that sells unpasteurized juice. Get a jug of it, put a balloon on top, <laughs> and just let it sit. <laughs> <That's crazy. laughs> it will ferment on its own in most cases. Because um, there's usually the wild yeasts in, in there that will start the fermentation and get it going. And the balloon will fill up with CO2. You might want to let that out once in a while. So, I mean, that's like the dead simplest way to do it. <laughs> And, and you might even get a decent tasting cider you never know that is a roll of the dice but for a little more certain cider you could also just buy juice from an orchard if you don't have a, a press or a grinder you could rent a grinder or a press there's homebrew supply shops that will rent grinders and presses i'd say the most important thing is cleanliness be very clean very sanitary Uh, sanitize the the jugs that you're going to put the cider into you're going to want an airlock on the top of it so something to keep oxygen and stuff other you know wild bacteria and organisms out during the fermentation the airlock lets air out so co2 is as the yeast is is metabolizing it's going to create a lot of co2 and so that airlock will just bubble and bubble away as the CO2 is released but then nothing is coming in the other way. Before we start fermenting it we usually add some sulfite or there's Camden tablets that's not a necessary step but it just is going to take out any wild things in that are living in the cider so that the yeast that you put in there, the yeast that you want can kind of dominate the fermentation and, and, and dominate the plate flavor profile. Uh, you maybe wait a day or so after adding the sulfite before you add the yeast. If, if you're just getting started, I think a good one is just a standard champagne yeast mm-hmm. or, because those are usually really vigorous. You know, Some yeasts are a little more sensitive and picky and you got to get everything right. Mm-hmm. Where champagne yeast is usually just going get to get the job done and make a nice, clean, dry cider. There are a couple cider yeasts out there. Uh, there's a soft cider I like. Some white wine yeasts do all right for cider. A couple sort of all-purpose mead wine cider yeasts yeah. that are all right. So the first yes. thing I ever I ever fermented in my life was quite a few years ago, and I was on this wild food kick. And I was reading this book called Stalking the Wild Asparagus by Ewell Gibbons. It's like a classic, cult classic. And in there was a recipe for dandelion wine. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to try this. It was a goofy recipe. Like, he had you float a piece of rye bread in it, which... know i guess for yeast nutrients or something but yeah so there's this you know this wine with a piece of rye bread just floating and slowly dissolving in it and i didn't you know i didn't know what i was doing at the time and so i used bread yeast because that's what i had in the house so why not and it did ferment it It worked. but i drank it it was okay it was drinkable didn't get sick
0: (laughs) i think the first thing i ever fermented when i was a kid was um i really liked root beer and uh we would buy root beer extract at the store, and we had a, like a half-gallon flip-top bottle. And I would put in like a half a tablespoon of sugar and just like a couple pinches of like bread yeast with the root beer extract and water and sugar, uh, and I'd close it off. And we put it in like three or four Tupperware, so if it exploded, it would be contained. It was a <laughs> containment uh, device. And the yeast, it was mostly for carbonation, really. It wasn't for creating alcohol. I was in middle school. I wasn't out to create alcohol, but... It definitely had a, would have created alcohol with pretty low content, I think, you know, 0.5% or something, you know, that kefir or other, you know, fermented foods have that really aren't considered alcoholic. And I'm surprised it never blew up because it got really fermented and uh, <laughs> maybe not the best tasting fermentation alcohol profile, but, you know, it had a whole bunch of root beer extract over the top of that so you didn't taste it. <laughs> Um, so we've talked about your website is there any other sort of thing that you'd like to plug up about bricks and coming up
1: um so i'd say watch for us in 2018 because um, we are planning to open our new production facility and a cider pub in mount horeb so we'll have food we'll have live music and of course lots of different ciders to try we'll have some small batches that we won't have out in the in stores so you can try a lot of these our little odd creations and 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 some of the fun stuff you know some of the stuff like i said that's maybe challenging we didn't we didn't want to put it in the general grocery store but if someone's really interested in cider they can come try it out and so yeah we're hoping that'll open we're shooting for for early spring 2018 uh mount horeb so keep an eye out for that
0: that sounds great because yeah you can come in and get a flight of couple standards that you know you're going to like and a couple things that are out there and mm-hmm. maybe expand your uh, your cider palette. So that yeah be... I
1: think we're one of the first of its kind at least in Wisconsin you know there's a lot of cideries that kind of set it up like a winery with a tasting room mm-hmm. and we thought yeah, it'd be fun to do it more like a brew pub and have some food and have some, some bands come and, and make it a place where people want to come hang out and, and drink some ciders
0: alright well thanks so much for having me uh, over to chat with you today and for sharing some of your uh, wild apple cider. right, thank you. Thanks to Matt and Brick Cidery for the interviews. You can find the links we mentioned on the podcast page. Let's take a look at this week in low tech news. We have stories on dozens of topics this week, a real hodgepodge. It's kind of odd, many weeks there seems to be a theme To what comes across my virtual desk, and I like to pull on these common threads. But this week is all over the place, from rainwater storage ideas and growing shiitake mushrooms to terra preta or black earth in the Amazonian rainforest. Europe is suffering under a heat wave named Lucifer, and we're experiencing unusually high rainfall in the Midwest, which has caused a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. So let me explain this. Every year during the growing season. Industrial agriculture spreads tons and tons of fertilizer on the fields. Only about 50% of that is absorbed by the plants. The other 50% gets washed into waterways and downstream, finding its way to the Mississippi and eventually to the Gulf of Mexico. Once there, all this nitrogen is eaten by algae. The algae also consume oxygen, and they create a huge zone where all the oxygen is eaten up, and many of the plants and microorganisms that can't swim away from this area run out of oxygen and it creates a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. This year it is the largest dead zone ever seen or recorded and it's about the size of New Jersey. So it's kind of interesting to look at how uh, rain in the Midwest and agricultural practices can impact the Gulf of Mexico. You can check out a little more about that written up on last week's blog. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip, and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, that's all one word, dot org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. I apologize for the gap in podcasting. It is the summer, and uh, typically in the summer I think we'll be podcasting less often because there's just so much to do outside while we have the summer season. We've been busy in the garden and trying to keep up with the weeds. Uh, Again, we've had record rainfall, and that seems to correspond with quite a lot of weeds. Uh, But the big time sink has been repairing the roof on our house, which has been made doubly difficult by the constant rain. The cedar roof on our house when we moved in was completely at the end of its use life, so it has to be torn off and a new one put on. And since I'm doing all the work, it's taking quite a lot of my time. Hopefully in the future years, I will have less time-consuming tasks and be able to spend more time podcasting throughout the summer. So thanks for bearing with us. Last weekend, the Institute was asked to present at the Permaculture Convergence in Madison, Wisconsin, where they had talks on dozens of topics over three days. We presented on solar water heating and had a dozen people come to our session um, and chat about how even in Wisconsin we can get quite a lot of solar radiation to heat hot water and the space inside our houses. You can find out more about that project on our website by checking out the blog. Speaking of which, um, I have data that I've written up and uh, will be analyzing over the weekend uh, on our tested solar arrays. We are currently testing out a number of different configurations of solar panels to heat hot water There are many DIY solar panels on the internet, but none of them are compared side-by-side, so it's really hard to say which one is most efficient. So we built four of them, and we're testing them side-by-side, and uh, the results are in. Check out the website for that uh, and for analysis coming up next week. But in short, uh, we have found a winner, and we are going to try and optimize how many BTUs, or British Thermal Units, or basically heat, that it can capture. So... Stay tuned to the website for that. We've been busy lining up workshops for the fall, including cordial making, an introduction to permaculture, making your own snowshoes, building wallapini greenhouses, and a few more. So check out the website for more details on each one of those workshops. We've also started offering memberships to support the Institute. Members enjoy special benefits and access to Institute resources, so you can check out the website for more details on that as well. That's all we have this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Apple Spell off the album How It's Done in Italy by My Bubba and Me. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Alike License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution Alike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute—that's all one word, org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno and reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have any of your feedback. Thanks and take care.